You have to understand the business model, how it is you make money, whether or not you can build a moat around that business. In other words, protect it. Do you have, a question I always ask is, do we have pricing power? Or are we purely a commodity that anybody can enter the business at any point in time and undercut us? That tells you something about your staying power. So I think you're evaluating a lot of these business dynamics, supply and demand dynamics. I think that's probably question one. Question two for me is who are the people involved? I want people Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our interview with Joel Peterson, where we talk about his next book, Entrepreneurial Leadership. If you missed part one, please go back and listen to that. And if you missed, if you missed uh, the first time we had Joel on the show, please go back and, and listen to that and learn about his time at $15 billion Trammel Crow and chairman of JetBlue Airlines and Peterson Partners and teaching at Stanford and all these great things. Joel, I kind of want to pick up on where we, we left off at the end of part one. This idea of be, you know, becoming trustworthy as the first step to helping the whole organization kind of unite in, in going after the peak that, that you've chosen to chase. When, when that has done better and, and we have chosen humility and we have been seeking feedback and we can tell that that trust is growing with, with the folks we're leading, what, what do you feel like is the next step there? Well, I think that I, I would be remiss if I didn't say uh, the next step is never breach trust. So, and, and you can breach trust simply by failing to deliver on assignment. You know, the way that we build trust is through delivering on our promises. You know, if you think of somebody you trust and they always deliver, you trust them more. If they come back and they fail to deliver, you trust them less. So you need to understand that it's this series of deliveries that maintains the trust. And that doesn't mean that you won't fail at certain points in time. What it does mean is that if you fail, you'll go and talk to the person. It may be because there was an intervening variable. It may be because you didn't understand the instructions. There can be a lot of reasons that we failed to deliver on our promises, but we need to recognize that when we don't, we've actually taken a withdrawal from our trust account and we need to fix it and we need to fix it immediately. And I think that goes both ways. If you, if you have somebody that's working for you and they're failing to deliver on something and you're disappointed, the right thing to do is go to them and talk to them about it, figure out why and rectify it. A lot of people will let it ride and they'll be a little bit perturbed, but they don't say anything. Then it'll happen the next time and the next time until finally they blow up, lose it, fire the person. And, you know, it's an unproductive uh, relationship. So I think fixing trust, fixing breaches immediately is the next thing that you do. And then I think you migrate it through the organization. You make sure that trust radiates through the organization. And that means giving feedback. It means laughing together. It means being transparent means communicating regularly, bad news as well as good news, before, during, and after events. It means being vulnerable, humble. So just a whole, in fact, that's the subject of the 10 laws of trust. What are the laws that allow you to maintain and repair trust? So I think you make sure of that. And then, and they're not serial. At the same time, you're deciding what peak are we going to climb? 
What is our mission? What matters most to us? People work for meaning. And so if, if people can come together and say, this is what we want to do, and it's their goal, it's not a mission statement delivered from the corner office, but they've actually helped craft it. You don't need to worry about motivating them. They are, they're self-motivated. So I think if you have a high trust team that is belayed, belaying each other on the side of a cliff and they're helping each other get to the top, you don't need to worry about motivation. You don't need to worry about a whole lot of things. They're, they're committed. Uh, so I think getting that mission right in a high trust environment is important. And then as we mentioned in the last session, making sure that you've got the right people on the team is vital. So I think those steps are preparatory to then delivering on promises. So you got to have all three of those in place before you can be uh, predictably reliable. Yeah. You know, I, I want to talk about this, the right, the right people on the team. You know, I think about all the different phases of business that you're involved in. I mean, brand new ideas that I'm sure your students at Stanford are telling you, you know, all the, all the early businesses that Peterson Ventures invests in and sees, and then as they mature in the private equity business and, and just all the different life phases here. And I guess an observation that I, I see, and I'd love to see if you agree or not, but I do feel like there's so many folks who maybe are more of a pure entrepreneur and they, they get the party started, but they're either, they've either designed a business model that doesn't have enough margin in it, or they've, they haven't brought on investors or something. And they feel like they can't afford to pay, you know, they can't afford the team that they need. What kind of thoughts do you have there? Should they be redesigning the business model until they can? Should they, what, what kind of ideas do you have? So that's one of the most common problems that uh, new entrepreneurs have, that startup ventures have, is they realize that the original team is not the one that can take them to where it is they want to go. Very few people can grow through all phases of, uh, of a business's development. So the question is always, a qu is always one of what can you afford and how far ahead can you hire? Some people will be able to grow. You have to give them training along the way, but I think you have to be honest with people and say, we're all here filling a role and may need to be replaced, including the founder. I think the wisest founders that I back are ones that realize that they're there for a season. Their job is to found things, to get them started, and uh, that they may not be the right person to take it to the next level. So there's a, it requires a certain level of humility, requires a desire for feedback, I encourage all the boards that I sit on to do an organization chart for the future. You know, if we're going to grow at 20% a year, what will our sales force need to look like in three years? And you start to realize, oh my gosh, we really need to have more training, et cetera. So I think you realize a bunch of things uh, if you do that. But your question is really, what do you do if you don't have the resources? I have often found that you're better off to dilute more, to bring in um, more capital than you think you'll need so that you can build for the future. That's not always possible. In some cases, you basically have to go to your team and say, um, you know, come build the business with me. We're not going to be able to pay everybody what they could get in the market for now, but we have a vision. We want you to be part of it and, and grow with us. Yeah. What about any advice for, I'm just thinking about how many small businesses there are where, you know, somebody, they were an expert individual contributor. So they thought, well, my boss charges three times what he pays me. I should just do this myself. And they, you know, they go off and they start a business and they get a few clients and they can afford, you know, an assistant and a little bit of help here and there. 
but they're not, you know, they're not bringing on peers. They're not being bringing on people of their caliber. It's more like people to support them in their, it's, you know, it's almost like glorified self-employedness more so than a business. Any thoughts on helping those people with the mindset of, you know, you say you want these big dreams, you say these want, you want these big goals to get accomplished, but your current structure does not, you know, like what you are does not match up with what it would take to get there. Anything to help people kind of move past the, almost the pride of like, but I'm the special one. (laughs) Well, I think most entrepreneurs, most people who are able to provide that kind of service feel that they are special and they probably are. Whether or not that can scale is another question. And I always tell my students, product is not a business and a service is not a business. They are simply a standalone product. So there's this notion of the gig economy where people have gigs and they can go out and provide a service or generate a product or whatever, but it will remain a gig and it will not become a business. To convert it to a business, you really have to have uh, a team of people uh, who are able to deliver it. And they may, t- they may have to take on different roles. And so I think people really need to think about you know, how, that, how that needs to be developed within their organization. I was tempted to say they need to get entrepreneurial leadership and think about all the things that they need to do. But that <laughs> yeah, was, no, we could say it. that. We could definitely <laughs> say that they need to go get their own copy of the book. That's yeah. a good start. But, but fundamentally, I, th- I think even a profitable business is not an enduring company. You really have to go to a level beyond where you really have built in all the processes where things can endure in good times and bad times, up markets, down markets survive tough situations like the one we're in right now. Yeah. Speaking of that, you know, with the, you know, we've been talking about JetBlue and these times are crazy. What, you know, what kind of insights do you have about, you know, airlines taking completely, you know, taking completely by surprise here? What, what kind of principles do you have for, for folks in the airline business at this point? Well, there's no way that any of the airlines can survive in the current market conditions for a long period of time. They're just uneconomic. Nobody's flying, <laughs> frankly. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't work without revenues. So I think job one is survival. You know, how do you survive? And that's really a question of cash. If you're out of cash, you're out of business. So you need to extend the cash runway. And what that means is cutting back on capital expenditures. Fuel prices are low, so that's you've saved on that. There are a lot of operating things you can cut back on. We've parked 170 planes, cut back on routes. So there's a number of things you can do to extend your runway. I think you have to imagine that you'll come out of it at some point in time. People want to be with family. They want to hold weddings. They want to travel again. They want to see people face to face. So you have to imagine the day that will come out. But what kind of brand will you have when it comes out? This is when you come out of it. This is a moment when your brand will be tested. You basically have a covenant with your customers. They expect certain things of you. And how will that evolve? How will you emerge from this crisis? At JetBlue, we've said safety is our number one value. We want to be known as the safest form of travel. And that now includes health safety. So what do we have to do to make sure people feel safe getting in a metal tube at 30,000 feet with a bunch of other people? That means taking their temperatures, probably not having people in middle seats 
for a while. It means probably flight attendants wearing masks. It means probably everybody wearing masks. It means sanitizing planes, a uh, little longer turnaround times. But safety is the brand that we need to continue to solve for. And then I think the final thing is I, I call it modeling winning mindsets, you know, where the, the leadership team can radiate. And that means that we ruthlessly confront reality. We don't deny whatever the reality is. We deal with it. We remain optimistic. We see the potential. There'll be a lot of opportunities that come out of, of any bad thing. It may reshuffle the deck, may make the market different, but there'll be opportunities for those who are nimble. It means being action-oriented. That means making timely decisions. And those timely decisions will sometimes be wrong. And that means you'll have to change them and therefore no recriminations. And throughout it all, it means communicating before, during, and after, and with a level of kindness that goes beyond what people often think of when they think of people under stress. Of course, people are under stress. They're worried. They're afraid of certain things. And so reaching out and being kind, taking care of customers, taking care of crew members, taking care of family. There are a lot of ways that the vulnerable can be protected and served during this moment of need. So I think that's kind of the, that's the approach we're taking at JetBlue and frankly, the approach we're taking in a number of the companies that I'm involved with. And I love that. I feel like, I feel like we've got the title for your new book. You know, two, two more years, you're going to have to come back on. We'll have the Ruthlessly Confronting Reality book. <laughs> I think that'd be excellent. Yeah. Well, let, let's go to the other end of the spectrum. You know, on the show, we, we often get to have on entrepreneurs who, who have made it quite a bit far, far past that. And maybe their revenues are 50 or $100 million a year. But sometimes, sometimes their business model almost feels to be, it almost seems like it's maxing out a bit then, you know, they're not experiencing the rapid growth anymore. When you think about the folks at that level who, you know, they, maybe they still aspire to 10 times the business, but the, the needle hasn't been moving much lately. Any, any thoughts when, when people are at that, you know, hundred million dollars of revenue type of level, but they don't seem to be on the trajectory to the billion. Well, I think every business, wherever you are on the spectrum, means you need to be rethinking and reimagining your business. Who are your customers? Are you losing customers as fast as you're bringing them on? If so, why are you losing them? Are there potential customers that you don't have because you don't have a certain product or service that they would like? Staying close to the market and the customer is the best way I know to uh, continue to evolve. But you should be thinking about evolving. If you're not growing, my experience is, if you're not growing, you probably are in trouble and don't know it yet. Growth, I, I would say that the number one business value next to showing respect for other human beings, including customers and employees, is profitable growth. You've got to have profitable growth. So that may mean revisiting your business model, revisiting your costs. How do you increase revenue? How do you cut costs? What is your capital structure? Can you change the sources of capital, the cost of capital? the way it's structured, bring in new faces? Do you have the right team in place? If you're not growing, are all the positions filled by A players? Can you improve your team's performance on the field? And then finally, I think you think strategically. Are there businesses you can buy? Are there divisions you should sell? Are there innovations, de novo efforts you should undertake? But you should be examining your business across all of those dimensions all the time. That's what's called good management. That's what's called entrepreneurial leadership. You know, those are such good questions. Thinking about what that looks like in, in application, is this, you know, is this something that maybe the leadership team should be doing monthly or at a quarterly retreat or a 
What what could that look like in uh, in action steps? Well, what I've always tried to do is encourage management teams to have a um, not only a rear view mirror, but also a pipeline mirror, a looking forward mirror. So they're not just reviewing the last quarter's results and adjusting things based on that, but they really are thoughtfully anticipating what's going on. What are our competitors doing? What is the market doing? What does our pipeline look like? What percentage of sales are we closing on? And that, that really, I think, helps people think about that. And then I mentioned to you projecting the organization chart forward. I've found that most management teams are so busy fighting fires and dealing with the daily things that they have a hard time approaching all those things unless they have a reporting uh, relationship. So as a board, I think the board asks management to step back and take a look at positioning, at strategy, at the structure of the balance sheet, at the source use statement, you know, all the things that really force them to step back and, and assess the business. I've also found that uh, boards should have an, at least an annual offsite where you have a couple of days where you can really think about succession planning, where you can think about what is the competition doing? What would the competitive response be if we did X, Y, or Z? I find that with Dodd-Frank and Sarbanes-Oxley and all the administrative things that you have to do today, at least in a public company, a lot of a board meeting can be spent on administrative matters. And really the board can be most helpful helping a management team think about what are what does the future hold? What are the obstacles to getting there? How do we remove those obstacles? Who do we need on board, on the board and on board as a member of the management team? So boards can be quite helpful if they have a chance to give those kinds of responses to management. Many times they really are, are really just uh, kind of washing the dishes and that doesn't work. Yeah. So what about the business? You know, they're, they're doing a hundred million dollars a year already, but it's, it's a tightly held company. They, you know, maybe it's a family business or maybe it's just, you know, somebody and a couple of partners and they, over the, you know, last 20 years, they really grew it, but they, you know, it's three owners or something, right? If they, you know, if they're not in a position from a, you know, capital stack standpoint to have to have a board, do you recommend, you know, creating maybe an advisory board or like invent your own board to be able to help you maybe push you a bit or any thoughts about that? Well, a board of directors and an advisory board are two very different things. I think any company can have an advisory board, which are typically friends, family, wise people, folks who are willing to devote a little bit of time, but you kind of get what you pay for. Mm. They, they may nudge you. And, and that's not to say that they don't have valuable insights and wouldn't be quite helpful. But there comes a point in time, and when you mentioned 100 million in sales, that, that's plenty big to have a board. I don't think it needs to be like a JetBlue. We've got, I think, an 11-person board. And you need that in order to be able to populate the various committees you have to have. But if you got 100 million, you could have a three to five-person board that could be quite helpful. I'm on another board that is now at 300 million in sales, and I think we've got a three-person board with two observers. And that tends to work. So I think you can adjust the size of the board, but at some point in time, the board then becomes responsible to shareholders, even if the shareholders are management. You know, you want that, that outside accountability, that rigor that comes with a, with a board by the time you get to that size. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember, I feel like you told us on the last time, last time you came on the show, What's your estimate between all the, between Peterson Ventures and Peterson Partners, what, what's the, 
What do you think the total number of companies you've been a part of investing is over your career? So if I step into the real estate world, I've done 2,500 real estate projects all over the world, 2,300 of them with Trammell Crow Company, and then 200 of them with Whitman Peterson. And the venture side, we've probably done 60 or 70, maybe, maybe even closer to 100 investments on the venture side, because we do mostly seed capital investments. On the Peterson Partners side, we're probably approaching uh, 100 companies that we've backed. And then we have a final category, which is called search, where we will back uh, young entrepreneurs who go out and look to buy companies. And we've probably done 25 or 30 of these search investments. So we back entrepreneurs at all kinds of levels and then try to help them uh, be successful, give them not only capital, but give them advice, contacts, remove obstacles, do the kinds of things that will help them be successful. Yeah. Well, I'm just interested from all that different experience, you know, right now, my partners and I are in the middle of starting a real estate investment trust. And we're going to use some of these new Jobs Act regulations. So we'll be able to, you know, solicit the general public with it, right? And at this point, we're really looking at, you know, probably starting in multifamily and trying to approach it differently of, you know, we want to almost get in the business of not really going head to head with a traditional REIT business and instead, you know, using shows like this and programs to really try and help entrepreneurs make more money so they can afford to buy passive income from us. You know, evaluating so many different businesses over your life, what would be initial questions you'd have for us? Or what kind of things do you think we need to take a hard look at with just that tiny little intro? Well, I think you're thinking about the right thing as to what product type. I think, I think it's really important to focus. I think a lot of people have a general idea, but really money is made by focusing and understanding the supply and demand of whatever the particular choice you make looks to be. And then I think you have to project forward. You have to understand the business model, how it is you make money, whether or not you can build a moat around that business. In other words, protect it. Do you have, question I always ask is, do we have pricing power or are we purely a commodity that anybody can enter the business at any point in time and undercut us? That tells you something about your staying power. So I think you're evaluating a lot of these business dynamics, supply and demand dynamics. I think that's probably Question one. Question two for me is who are the people involved? I want people with, who are persistent, high character, clever, see around corners, have great interpersonal skills because they're going to have to deal with people inside and outside the organization. I think if you get those two things right, and then of course by entrepreneurial leadership, so you know all the other things you need to do. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I did. I bought it right when we were starting the show. I didn't know it was on Audible, so I quickly bought it. So I got awesome. my head start there. Awesome. That's really helpful. You know, I guess maybe my next question would be on the real estate side. You know, my my partner who I've done business with for 20 years, he's owned commercial real estate with his dad for 30 years, but not on the scale that we're looking at. You know, they're in the millions, not the hundreds of millions that we would like to eventually get to, right? So we've brought on a guy who I've known for almost 20 years who spent almost that entire time in REITs. And he, you know, he recently left a $2 billion REIT to be at a, a large private organization kind of in the tens of billions. And, and he, we've got him agreed to come on and be the CEO. And so I feel like there's like this circle of competence level of, you know, he's done two and a half billion dollars worth of commercial real estate deals, mostly in the multifamily space. And from a 
trust integrity standpoint, I, I feel solid on him just over our 15 plus year relationship. But in certain ways, I don't know what I don't know about overseeing him doing all these deals for us going forward. Any any thoughts for me where I feel like I know a bit about real estate, but certainly not as much as the CEO we've we've hired to come on? Yeah, I mean, to me, the smart thing to do is make sure your interests are aligned, that if he wins, you win. And then, you know, sort of develop the trust, a conversation and a deal at a time. You, you obviously go into a partnership like that, trusting someone, but you should probably have off ramps. You know, what happens if things don't work out right? How do you unbundle? How do you unwind? I think that's a good question that any entrepreneur should ask. None of them ever expects it. And I don't expect it either, but it's amazing how often it does happen. And you want to have it be smooth and elegant and damage free when it does happen. So I'd think about that. I would also think really hard about the markets and what is the stage. You know, one of the things I learned in the real estate business a long time ago was there's no such thing as you pick the city, the LA market. You know, in fact, I was instructed one time by our partners in LA that there were 123 markets, separate markets in LA. <laughs> some were overbuilt. Some had a huge need in terms of multifamily, but no need in terms of single family. So it's really understanding the granularity of the market. So I think that's a that's something to really understand. And my guess is the, the fellow you're talking about has a wonderful and very granular understanding of markets. And uh, so I wouldn't drift too far away from the markets he knows because he's got a lot of built-in instincts that he probably doesn't even realize he has. That's that's really good advice. I will say, yeah, all these initial targets. We've, we've had, you know, we've got some interns out of some finance programs and my partner's experience and we brought him so many things that we thought because we were you know we we're trying to make it easy on him by doing a bunch of the deal sourcing for him kind of thing and his his ability to say oh well that's too far two blocks too far this way you really do not want to get past 700 east once you do you know these. so i i feel like i've started to see a bit of that already i guess maybe as a follow-up to that when you look at the implications of covid and you know life going forward what do you see any changes for multifamily as a, as an asset class or any any things as you think about the next decade of multifamily given all your experience well i think covid is going to affect all the business every business at some level or another i think multifamily is one of the least to be impacted i think you know the markets aren't particularly overbuilt now i think for a while it'll be maybe hard to get lending to, to be able to borrow money against them. Uh, but there's plenty of money. There's a lot of equity money looking for things to do. I don't think the markets, and again, there are literally thousands of markets, but I think in general, they're not wildly overbuilt. So I think that's good. My guess is the demand, you know, it's functionally a question of uh, population growth and job growth. And uh, I think for a while, people, there may be an affordability issue as things sort out. So that could be a pause or a slowing down, but ultimately the population is growing. The economy will recover. They're not overbuilt. I think if you well-located, well-designed, reasonably priced ones, I think it will still be a, a vibrant market. Oh, that's great. Well, thanks so much for that. You know, I'm thinking about such a varied career, how you've, you've been able to do so many interesting things. And I'm really excited to to get into the new book 
what do you what do you think that you've done different? What do you attribute your success to that that where maybe so many other people haven't achieved what you've achieved? Well, that's a good question. I don't think you see clearly. I've kind of put one foot in front of the next. I've taken on each challenge and tried to do the best I could. I've I've really tried to reflect credit to others. I think that's really the way that you build loyalties and relationships with great people is you absorb blame if things don't go right and you reflect credit if they do. And then I think that helps you surround yourself with really great people. I think business is a team sport and uh, you really only win by bringing on great people. And so I think if you surround yourself with great people, high energy, persistent, thoughtful people that are liked by others, you almost can't help but succeeding. But it's not always easy to find and retain great people. But if you can do that, I think you're halfway there. I love it. Well, we really appreciate all the time you've given us. Maybe to close off, what, you know, I know you get interviewed all the time and got articles in major publications, Forbes and Inked and and stuff like this. What's a question that you don't get asked enough? Or what, what's a question you wish people would ask? <laughs> I feel like I, I could, there's a lot of them I get asked that I wish they wouldn't, but <laughs> ones I wish they would ask. Probably, you know, the thing that I'm proudest of, which doesn't have anything to do with what you're necessarily asking, is my family. I've got uh, great kids and grandkids and a great wife, and we've had more enduring success and happiness from that than anything I've ever done in business. Any, any maybe as we close off on that, any advice for, you know, the pure entrepreneur who is trying to become, you know, the, the full well-rounded entrepreneurial leadership example, who maybe has a tendency to hyper-focus or to, to maybe think we can think we can make things up with our family later. And we just got to hurry on this business thing. Any, any advice for, maybe overcoming some of the, you know, negatives to a family that being ambitious can bring? Well, I think entrepreneurship is a tough taskmaster. It's a crying baby in the middle of the night. You have to, you have to attend to it. So when the company is under stress, you got people who are relying on you. You have lenders, investors, suppliers, distribution channels, and they all are depending on you. And it's hard not to prioritize that at those moments of stress which to me means that you have to think about your family ahead of time and plan certain things and just set them aside and say, I'm going to always do this. And you find that if you do those first, uh, you may end up doing what I did for many, many years as I got up at four in the morning and went to work. And that was the only way I could get all of the things done in my business. And I was tired. I was tired for years, but I had these chunks of time then that were, were reserved for coaching my kids teams, being at their games, going to concerts with them. I mean, this idea of being with them, I just, I made some sacrifices there, but I was pretty determined to, to not miss out on those kinds of events. I love it. Okay, everybody, please go to joelcpeterson.com, check out the new books, or buy, buy the Entrepreneurial Leadership by Joel Peterson on Audible like I did. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Joel, thanks for for coming on the show. You bet. My pleasure. Nice to talk with you, Jeff. You bet.